Hello and welcome to the Cultural Peeps podcast. My name is Ian Wielden and I'm a lecturer in the School of Arts and Cultures at Newcastle University. This series is part of an ongoing project which explores different career pathways across the museum, gallery, heritage and wider cultural sectors. I really want this series to do three things. The first is to help early career professionals understand the huge range of ever-changing job profiles that now exist. The second aim is to help those professionals interpret job titles in the context of different venues and organisations. Sometimes jobs with the same title can be radically different depending on the organisation. The third aim is to help listeners understand that the people that make up any field of work are all human and that in turn plays a significant part in their unfolding career pathway and decision-making processes. A few caveats. The recordings that form the basis for the podcasts aren't technically perfect. They're often grabbed in busy offices and in between meetings, so you can frequently hear the everyday world of work whirring on in the background. Just a final note, these podcasts are edited down from longer conversations, but I've tried to keep in as much of the original content as possible. Hello and welcome to episode one of the Cultural Peeps podcast. I'm currently in the Discovery Museum, which is where I interviewed my guest for this first episode, and that's Bill Griffiths. Bill is currently the head of programs at Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums, and also the head of Culture Bridge Northeast. At the start of the interview, I asked Bill how he defines himself, and surprisingly, his answer was as an archaeologist. So despite the management roles that he now undertakes and that have been a feature of his career development since the mid-90s, in his heart he's still the same person and professional as when he started his career. Bill describes his initial discovery of archaeology and the people that he worked on early excavations with as finding his tribe, something which I think is a pattern throughout this series, where professionals find their home in and amongst what effectively is a wide-ranging and complex interconnected job field. In his early career, Bill worked in a number of archaeological sites, both as a volunteer and in a commercial capacity, before settling at what would go on to become a fantastically important site for him, and that's a part of Hadrian's Wall at Wall's End called Segedunum, situated north of the River Tyne. Segedunum was originally a Roman fort, and following the introduction of the Heritage Lottery Fund in the 1990s, Bill was part of a team that put together the initial application to create a visitor centre there. You'll hear in the interview that Bill was torn between his love of archaeology and his involvement in this new and rapidly growing project, something that went on to eventually include a reconstructed Roman military bathhouse, a museum that would contain items of interest that were found at the site as it was excavated, and a large observation tower that overlooks the fort's footprint. This shift and slight sideways step goes on to define the next stage in Bill's career, And he talks about effectively giving up the Romans as he transitions away from his core love of archaeology and into project and managerial work within what became Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums. Another big theme of the podcast series emerges here, and that's networking. 
Bill is very much a people person and he talks about the importance of working in partnership with both colleagues within his own organisation and across interconnected sectors. So that includes the Arts Council, local authorities, the region's universities and other cultural venues. In addition to the things that I've mentioned so far in this introduction, I've put links to sites, organisations and projects mentioned in the conversation in the podcast description. So if there's anything that you'd like to look up that Bill and I talk about, then that's a good starting point. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, there is a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. That's it from me for now. I hope you enjoy the episode and I hope you find it useful. Thank you very much for joining me today, Bill. If you could just start by saying a little bit about yourself, how do you define yourself? I'm British, um, I'm in my 50s, and um, I suppose the funny thing is, given I work in museums, I probably still define myself as an archaeologist, really, which is quite interesting. Yeah, it is. So what's your current official title? So official uh, title is Head of Programmes and Culture Bridge Northeast at Tarnamere Archives and Museums. Okay, so that role that, you, that you've described there, or the, the title that you've described there, and you've described yourself as an archaeologist, why the difference there between okay. those two things? Well, because, you know, I trained as an archaeologist, so in my soul that's still who I am, you know, that's where some of my voluntary time goes on committees and things like that. It's where my, a lot of my, or but a lot of my leisure time reading goes and things like that. I try and keep up with the subject. Um, so in my soul, I still feel like that. But I really, really, really enjoy being a museum professional. But I never set out to be one. And I guess that's really the, the thing. Before we, we move on to that, how important do you think that those titles about how you define yourself, so the, the difference between a, an official job title and your... Yeah. I, it's interesting. I think it, it probably means a lot to me. Um, uh, uh, but I think, you know, most people deal with the person they're working with. You know, and it's that the interesting question, in, in, if you like, is, is to what extent are you you and to what extent are you, are you your role? Yeah. You know, so the, the me um, is, is still in his soul an archaeologist, but the me, the professional, very much is a museums person. I don't really do any archaeology now, um, little bits here and there. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, and I really enjoy being that professional, living that role and doing this job yeah. and, and kind of inhabiting that space, if you will. What does your journey to your current role within Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums look like? Yeah, because I have, I have a line here. So I've worked for Tyne and Weir Archives <laughs> and Museums for an unbelievable 28 and a half years, during which time I've had Whoa. three different careers. So there's, there's, a, there's a, something you don't hear every day, one organisation, three careers. Um, so it starts for me, you know, go to university, study archaeology, absolutely love it. Just the best thing since sliced bread. Um, Go and get work um, on graduating in Yorkshire, worked for a few years there, um, and then came up to Newcastle, originally to start some postgraduate studies, um, but found a job with uh, Tyne Weir, 
um, as a field archaeologist um, and spent several happy years, really through the 90s, um, uh, you know, uh, as a really commercial archaeologist, going out doing jobs all over the northeast. Um, but my main area of work was Wall's End. Come 1996, uh, Heritage Lottery Fund uh, give a grant for development of Wall's End. I've been involved in the original feasibility study. Um, so I guess I was already moving into sort of like that public interpretation of archaeology rather than the, right. the physical doing of it. Yeah. And I'd always been interested in that. I was always interested in how you get the public excited about archaeology. Uh, moving to that, um, and then we, we get the grant, so I end up as project officer for the development of Segedunum. So all that just feels perfectly natural. It's just I'm doing archaeology, I'm doing archaeology, I'm doing archaeology. I'm focusing down a Roman fort, Roman military is my main interest. It all makes perfect sense. Then come 2000, and I have a decision to make, which is do I just go back and do whatever archaeology is turning up, or do I stay with Segedunum? So I thought long and hard about it and thought, I've put several years of my life into this place. I can't imagine not at least trying out for the job of curator. So I applied and got that job. So that's the first career change. I go from being a field archaeologist um, into being very much a museum curator. Now, looking back on it, of course, I spent two or three years while we were developing the museum, making that change, but I didn't realise it at the time because I was thought yeah. I was going to do field archaeology. So I made that change, become curator. Um, three or four years of doing that, and of course, I find I'm very, very interested in museology and interpretation, and then not just of the Romans, I'm interested in the mechanics behind it. Um, and a very different job comes up, um, and that's the job of... Um, uh, manager of the Northeast Region Museums Hub for a new programme called Renaissance at that point. And that, the idea of that was to persuade museums to join up and work together better. And I can remember going on holiday and thinking long and hard through most of this holiday about whether <laughs> I really wanted to effectively give up the Romans um, and give up archaeology and go and do this, this other job. Um, but it started, it could be a secondment for a couple of years at first. So I could, I could dip my turn in the water. I was very lucky right. there. I didn't have to think of it as a final decision. I could see how it went. Well, was that back. because of the nature of that project? It was the nature of the funding. Um, right. It was funded okay. every three years. I think so it was about two, two years funding there. If, so I had an out. <laughs> if the money had run out at the end of two years, I could drop back into Segedunum. Yeah. So that, no, it's a great advantage of working for a big organisation. You can have that kind of flexibility. Yeah. So great, okay. So I didn't, I didn't have to consciously make a do-or-die decision. I could, I could test it out. And found I loved it. I loved that idea of working with lots of different people, connecting up different programmes, um, uh, and when I think back on it, it makes perfect sense. If you spent all your life as an archaeologist working with lots of different people, because that's one of the skills you learn very quickly if you're in field archaeology. Yeah. Loads of people to work with. Um, and you know, you're spending all day working with lots of people. And on site, of course, you're joining things up. How does this relate to that? How does this fit together? So that thought process, for me, very naturally carried over on into this, this hub job. Yeah. So when it was extended, I was enjoying it so much, I thought, well, I'll just carry on doing this then. Yeah. And, and then since then... I've always been on the senior management team here since that moment, and that's evolved, but I've always found myself doing that same thing of how do you work with lots of different people, connect things up, In lots and, of, yeah. and make sense of it all, which to me is, is still being a site archaeologist. Before I go back to the field archaeology part of that, just one, one quick question. So you, you talked about the role of curator there at Segedunum. Has that role changed, that kind of title? Is that something that would now perhaps be called like a director of a site? Or? Oh, language is, is so difficult, job titles. Yeah. So curator of Segedunum. I mean, I, I suppose beforehand I would have been one of, before Segedunum, one of the project officer for the site. I would then have been a site director, a dig director. Yeah, okay. Uh, alongside two others. So I was a co-director of these excavations, about 100 people on site. 
yeah. 50 staff, 50 volunteers. Um, and before that, I'd have been a site director or a site manager of, of different sites. Yeah. Curator at Segadunum is now a job title we will call venue manager. Yeah. Okay. Um, inevitably, because there have been cuts since then, our venue managers now have to manage multiple venues. But in those days, you got one each. One each, yeah. So yeah. it was, uh, you know, and very different. But that meant I had one each and then some responsibility for field archaeology at the site. Yeah. Whereas the, the, you know, the venue manager there now, who has to cover four sites, wouldn't cover the archaeology. You were moving into a, a, a management position of multiple projects, uh, multiple elements of a project at that yeah. time. So you were kind of paving the way for where you were... Yeah, without realising it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's just, I was expanding my skill set. Um, we'd, we'd had some great management training and in, uh, while we were building Segedoom, um, which I'll always you know, credit with, with helping me think more widely. And the main thing it did was to, to remind me that it's important to try and just move out your comfort zone from time to time. Yeah. The most dangerous thing you can do is go, I know how to do this, I'll do this, and that's what I'll do. Yeah, but that feels good though, doesn't it? it and it, it's, it's seductive. It's <laughs> really seductive, it. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's really seductive because it's a nice place to be. Yeah. And there are bits of this job now where I move back into poor museums or pure archaeology and I feel very safe yeah. and, and comfortable. I understand that I know what to do. And that's great. But one of the reasons it feels comfortable is because I'm challenging myself elsewhere. Yeah. So that stuff doesn't feel stale. I think if you stay in your comfort zone, you can go stale. Yeah. So it's about challenging yourself and, and motivating yourself. I think I've done it by just seeing something exciting. I've had no career ambition particularly. Well, I did. When I, was, when, when I first graduated, I wanted to direct to dig on Hadrian's Wall one day. And all of a sudden, I found myself doing that. And right. you, you said, this is brilliant. This is the best thing ever. Now what? Yeah. You know? Uh, I, so... It was, but that was never about ambition. That was about being excited. Yep. So for me, all these job changes have been, wow, that sounds really exciting and interesting. And I think I could, I could give it a go, you know. And I've been very lucky that for the most part, I've been able to give it a go with it. If it doesn't work out, I can slip back again. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that, that's quite... no longer an option. But yeah. <laughs> that's quite, that's, that is an interesting um, position yeah. to take on it. There is, I mean, it seems strange if you said from the outside, I've been a field archivist, I've run a museum, now I'm a, a strategic manager working across the region. Yeah. You go, what? But actually, yeah. it, it makes sense when you actually look at it in detail. So you, you said that when you left university, you wanted to work on Hadrian's Wall, yeah. and that was a dream that came yeah. true for you. What did you want to be when you were eight or ten? Uh, do you know, I can remember very clearly a conversation with a school teacher who said, so what, what do you all want to be when you grow up? So I'm eight or ten. I went, a clown, miss. <laughs> and she said, oh, I've always thought of you as a professor. And I, you know, I've, I've looked back at that, and I, I look back at now, and working in archaeology museums. There's parity. Exactly, there, there is parity, I think. I think, I think I've nailed both, really. But, you know, um, it, it, but it's quite funny, isn't it, that? Yeah, yeah. I remember that conversation. Um, I guess when you're very young, you, you, know, you know the world around you, yep. and that's it. And my parents were both in television and theatre. Right. So I knew that world. So, so the clown probably made sense, comedian, clown, whatever, made yeah. people laugh. Um, then it was going to be a television cameraman. But I'd always had, loved visiting historic sites. And um, I probably began for me when I got to secondary school and a you know, very good teacher took us through the Romans. Right. And that was it. Captured your imagination that, at that point. Although I'd step back further and take that particular session back to my dad buying me Asterix of Gaul when I was five. Oh, right, okay. That's probably yeah. the classic. So, so you know, let, let, we, we can do, the, we can do the, the, the official stuff of, well, you know, I like visiting sites. It was really good now. I just like reading Asterix of Gaul. Wasn't interesting that a French boat with a moustache, but these Romans seemed a magnificent. Yeah. Building an empire, it all just seemed... It captures, jo joining things up. Yeah, it, it does work, capture you know? a kind yeah. of very... Th those yeah. images in the yeah. Asterix 
yeah. books that are kind of really powerful, I think. I do remember yeah. discovering those. I was on a French holiday yeah. with my parents when I first... First, I didn't understand because I, I ended up with this book in French. I didn't understand yeah. it. So it was all of all of the images that were the powerful uh, kind of communicator there. What subjects did you do? Then? How did that manifest itself? What, what did A-level? Yeah, so once you started so, to have a choice. So once, um, by the time I was doing my O-levels, I think I realised I wanted to do archaeology. Um, on the grounds that I enjoyed history, but something was missing. I like that more connectivity with people. Um, so... Yeah, I went and did, what was it, history, geography, English, and I think that was it. I think it was three was it, the main choices he had then. I must digress into an interesting careers path story. Had to go to the careers teacher. Okay. So this is, you know, 30-odd years ago. I have a horrible feeling it hasn't changed much. Um, sat down, right, what do you want to be? I'd like to be an archaeologist, miss. Right, so you'd have to go to university. Let's have a look. Opens this big book. Yeah. Oh well, you didn't do a level chemistry, so you can't do archaeology. That was it. That's what she actually said yeah. to me. You can't. Do... I said, "Beg pardon, miss. It's an arts degree. No, no, it's a science degree. I'm here at Bradford, and because she just gone down the first university on the list was Bradford. Yeah, well, it's a science degree. I think you'll find, miss, it's also an arts degree. Really? Oh no, you're oh you've got the right levels. You're fine. You can do archaeology. Now imagine if I'd had the passion but had no knowledge. Yeah. Were the relationships with other teachers motivating within that context? He said that somebody introduced you to... Well, that, that, that particular teacher, I mean, a supply teacher, uh, the trainee teacher who left after a year, so that right. particular one. Now, I had a very good A-level history teacher, a guy called Mike Wiles, who was very, very good. Um, always remember telling me that I wasn't an actual historian, right. which I've taken as a compliment ever since. <laughs> In a theoretical In sense, a, yeah, yeah, because I, you were practically oriented. Because I was practically right. I've, I've taken that as a compliment. So you're not a natural historian, he said, but you're doing well, have Fine. Did he mean that as an insult, or is? <laughs> I think I think he meant it as just just one of those things. I mean, it was after I'd left school. I just went back and was chatting to him. Yeah, so I, I think you know it wasn't so it wasn't anything that, oh, right, that but my career was set. That was just a, a discussion. Um, but uh, you know that was interesting. So no, I mean I I I've got fine my teachers, but I don't I don't I don't remember discussing archaeology as a passion with any of them particularly. Um, no, I mean for me. I was lucky that my parents supported me um, intellectually, and I, I, you know, I can't remember how now, but somehow I heard there was a Yorkshire Archaeological Society. Right. My parents weren't interested in this sort of thing, um, but my mum has always been a member of different clubs and societies, and, and so appreciated that side of things. So they signed me up, joined the Roman Antiquities section, and age seventeen, I found out there was a conference down the road, and went along to it, and then someone said, "Oh, do you want to go on a dig?" And so I went was, on a dig, yeah. and that was it. So I was, I was you know. I, I looked for my luck in that I was aware that, you know, I'd, I'd found out these things existed and um, went to my first dig, just loved it, and, and then talked to the diggers. And it's that point, I think a lot of people talk about, you find your family. Yeah. Um, you're in touch to my intellectual family, you're archaeologists, and the people on that dig, and I just, just clicked completely. And I can remember sitting there and saying to someone, what, what do I do now? And they said, right, you need to subscribe to current archaeology and subscribe to uh, um, Council of British Archaeology's excavation listings. So which was the standard advice then. So I had current archaeologists just read and absorb and just get stuff from. And the CBA listings, which of course I don't think it's really existing more now, hundreds of digs yeah. that would even pay your expenses yeah. if you rocked up with a tent. You know. <laughs> so and that, did you do that? Did I did you? indeed do that. I spent my summers as a circuit digger when I was a student. 
So when when you was that when you were at university yeah. you were doing that. So yeah. so you said that you loved university. Yeah. And how, what element of university did you love? Was it the, the program itself or the social life that was attached oh, it was de- to it? Definitely or, both. I yeah. Mean, definitely. Were the two things connected, or were you living? You know, some people have a course and a social life that are quite separate. Um, it, no reasonable amount of connection because I'm starting my first year in halls, so you get to know the people who got around you in halls, but inevitably. I tended to gravitate to the historians. Yeah. There weren't any archaeologists at my end of the university. Right, okay. So I mean, some of my best friends now still were historians, and I joined a reenactment group and things like that, which yeah. has been another research passion of mine. Yeah. But that just came out of meeting these guys, yeah. and they said, then we do this. And so I joined in and I brought that into my archaeology. Um, but no, so, so for me, I mean, the course was absolutely everything. I can remember, it, you know, people would say, well, you've done drama at school, your dad's an actor, so you should join the drama club. No way, no, I'm, I'm here to do archaeology, mate. That's, that's yeah, it. Yeah. That's all I want to do. I'm not interested in anything else. I was really very focused. Right. Um, which, that's quite... Uh, yeah. That's and then I discovered real ale as well. Yeah, well, helps, well I was going to say, but, there's yeah. normally a few distractions <laughs> yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I, I knew that that was my passion yeah. and always has been. You know, it, it's what's at the very core of me, is that excitement to learn more about all archaeology, yep. in particular the Romans, and then increasingly develop a desire to get other people excited about it. And then that's all that's archaeology, that's spread into, you know, whatever the subject is that I'm working on in a museum at a given moment. Yeah. And then following university, hmm. you, we, did you carry on, you commercial archaeologist? Commercial, so so um, West Yorkshire um, supervising um, unemployment schemes, right. which is a really interesting learning ground. So loads of different skills there yeah, required yeah, in and terms of not very just... quick and do it. Yeah. Then York, working on one of their big commercial digs. Okay. It's a very different kind of stratigraphy. And then came up here, and the rest is history. And you yeah. start, so you came up here specifically to work with Hadrian's Wall? No, no, specifically to do postgraduate research oh, at Newcastle. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, but I was funding it myself, and the reason I was doing it was so that I could then you know, get a director's job on Hadrian's Wall. The, the postgraduate research was Roman military equipment. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was trying to do field archaeology. Right. I had a research interest. Um, I started doing that, um, but I wasn't funded, so I had to get a job. Got a job with um, what's now TWAM, um, working on various digs. And of course, you then very quickly find myself supervising and then sort of being the site director for digs, Um, at which point research got shoved to the background because the day job was all absorbing and exciting. Um, And I kept up for, you know, a few years, but then I got the job of um, being site director for a dig at Chester's. And... I'd kind of, although I wanted to do the research, I didn't need to anymore because yeah. I had the job I wanted and that job was all absorbing. So the research f- fell by the way. Um, I still, you know, it's one of those things that if, uh, you know, it all ended tomorrow, I'd probably want to go back and pick up again. Yeah. But I'm doing things that just feel even more exciting at the yeah. moment. Was the research, the, the PG research work that you were doing, was it almost a safety net for you just because of the finances there? Was it a way of just ensuring that, Oh, you said you were funding that yourself. Yeah, I was funding it myself. Oh, yeah, right, no. so, okay. so it's a real, I mean, research is still a, a passion of mine. I guess it's that funny thing of who you think you are when you're younger and who you find yeah, out you are. Yeah, yeah. And when I was younger, I guess I probably wanted to be a really great research archaeologist. Right. And then gradually I've realised I'm more interested in, in doing great interpretation. Right. Which is different. So although I like research, I don't ever quite believe myself when I do it. <laughs> 
It, it, you know, in what way you feel? I feel oh, other people have trod this ground, or I'm not really contributing anything, and we're not really achieving all those research walls you get. Yeah, in, the imposter syndrome yeah. surfaces. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do it. I do it to myself even now. I'm still. I'll still speak at conferences occasionally, uh, and I have to watch myself very carefully because I'll, I'll be very excited about giving a paper, and if I don't watch it, I'll convince myself it's all rubbish, and I'm not saying anything. Right. And that comes across when you give a paper, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, of course. The so I have to really kick myself. It's quite interesting. I would, I would regard that as a weakness. Yeah. I, but that's there with mm. lots mm. of people, lots yeah. of professionals. Some people just, I think, either hide it or ring fence it more effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they, some people learn to be more confident in certain ele- yeah. elements so they address that. Whereas other people, you can tell in their language that they downplay certain yeah. parts of their... You know, yeah. we're still working on this yeah. kind of comments. You know, rather than yeah. we did this and it was great. This might show, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, and I, yeah, that's that, that's an academic one. And, and so I've I've always feel, yeah, that imposter thing will probably be quite quite right. Um, so I never really developed that side of me properly. Um, but I don't have the same issue in interpretation. Interestingly, particularly, I'm not interpreting the Romans. Right. So if I'm it's doing other stuff, I'm heart. not worried. Right. And it's very interesting. I've done reenactment as a Roman, and I hate it. Because... <laughs> it's too much detail it's too much in detail. That. Well, if yeah. a member of the pub comes up to you and says, so is this, is this sword about right? You know, if I'm doing 17th century, <laughs> yeah, it's about right. You know, it's yeah. this, it's... Of course, the Romans have launched into half an hour. And that's no good at all. And I find it really hard to, that's really to give a glib answer, so, which is what's needed in, yeah, in those areas. It's, almost, it's better not to be a specialist in a certain sense because you yeah. can convey enthusiasm without necessarily drowning people in the detail yeah. of what's happening. And, and it depends on your audience, doesn't it? Yeah, know? of course. And it's, it's that, but yeah. I find it very hard to bring the Romans to a very broad public audience if yeah. I was dressed as a Roman. Yeah. Funnily enough, I can do it if I'm not. It sounds really weird, doesn't it? No, because I, I, I feel well. I'm wearing a suit, so people accept that I'm being a specialist, and I can do yeah. it. But when you're dressed as one, there's a different type of interpretation. I yeah. can't really slip do. back to. Yeah. So, how did you end up working at Segedunum then? Um, so, I'd been at Twam for a couple of years, uh, supervising various excavations, mostly at Arbea. Uh, then um, I got uh, a colleague left, Neil Holbrook, who now runs. Um, Cotswold Archaeological Trust, so big shoes to fill, um, and he'd been um, site director on excavation at Chester's. Uh, I was available, <laughs> so I went out and took over from him, um, working under Paul Bidwell. Yep. Um, so I was kind of in charge data down the site, and then Paul obviously really directed the main operation. Um, finished that one, um, so I'd become at this point an assistant keeper, which is a job title here at the yeah. time. And job titles at the time don't really fit with anywhere else, but we can maybe talk about that later. <laughs> Did, so uh, done that, came back in. What was the next job? Well, um, Paul had done some trial excavations at Wall's End a few years before, um, and he got a chance to open up a bigger stretch of Hadrian's Wall. So um, I got the gig um, and began what was probably a couple of years' worth of excavations on where the reconstructed wall now is. Right. Always with on, the idea we'd do the, the di- on the far side of yeah, the fort. Yeah. So okay. on the wall, dig that, um, and then we'd, we'd reconstruct this section of wall. So that seemed yeah. like a very big, big job at the time. It's quite interesting back in it. It seemed completely all-encompassing, you know, to me. Yeah. And it was, you know, if that's your was day that job. Was that intimidating at the time for you? No, it was exciting. Just plain exciting. So there's no imposter syndrome there? You were no, no, kind no, of no, com- not confident. And, and again, well, it's a safe net thing. You want someone like Paul Bidwell, who really knows his onions. Yeah. You know, you've got that. You can rely on someone yeah, else to help you, you know. So yeah. there's, there's, there's that. Um, 
So no, I didn't have any problems with that. Um, and I like reconstruction archaeology, yep. which, you know, it's a contentious area and a whole other 10 interviews. But, yep. you know, I like that. Um, so I felt very comfortable doing it. And of course, but what started out as we'll probably just dig, dig the wall and not find out much else. We found, of course, as always when you dig, there's more to it. Yeah. There's much more to the site. So we found uh, these post holes in front of the wall, which are now seen as part of the frontier generally. We found a suggestion of, of Vicus defences, as well as the wall itself showing signs of collapse and repair. Um, so, huge big dig. So I then became the person that kind of kept an eye on Wall's End. I actually lived in Wall's End at the time, so let's not say it's for any other reason because I happened to live closest. I kept an eye on the site. Because we were building this wall, a North Tyneside Council came to us in late 1994 and said, there's this new funding coming called Heritage Lottery Fund. We think we could do something in Segedin. Would you work up a feasibility study? So Paul and I went away and worked at this feasibility study for the yeah. museum. So at that point, I'm really starting to think about how do you make this interesting to the public? I'm not just being a field archaeologist. Um, and we go through that process. And I so you know, must have been yeah. thinking about the site as you know, a long-term investment for you at that point. I probably don't think I was conscious of that at that point. Um, in fact, I'll tell you what I was conscious of. I was thinking, this would be a nice academic exercise, but who's going to pay for this? All right, okay. Because <laughs> remember, this is before HLF has started. Yeah, there was So no... it was a theory as to what they were yeah. doing. You had nothing you could look at and go, they'll do that. So who the heck funds a whole massive museum? You know, yeah. these guys must be cloud cuckoo. You know, we've got a small room in the Heritage Centre and we managed to build a section of wall and that's taken years. Yeah. So, I, you know, but you dream the dreams and you think, well, what if we took over these old buildings and turned them into a museum? And yeah. what if we could lay out the site a bit more and blah, blah, and... Paul always wanted to reconstruct a bathhouse, we put that in. One thing that never made it in, I'd always want to take over a big shed next to the site, some industrial units, and build sort of a, a Vicus scene, but inside. Right. So you could have a, a, an all-weather outdoor oh, reconstruction great. experience. And some of the Canadian experience. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there, are, there are some museums in Canada that do this, prairie museums, and it's yeah. all covered over, but you like you're walking down the street. Oh, like York Castle Museum, yeah. think of the street scene there, it's like that. That never, never came about. But we, we, we had lots of different ideas and we worked through them. But I can remember when we submitted thinking, well, that was fun. Now back to digging. So I didn't have a, this will get funded. I, yeah. I had no idea at all. We put it in and we put that first report into the council in March 1995. And I remember them saying, well, we like it, but, and I thought, here we go. And they went, but it's not big enough. We think HDF wants something bigger and grander. So we had to go back and wow. more bits were added in. Um, and it, you know, and then then you start thinking, oh, people are interested in this. But it was probably not till summer '96 I started thinking this might actually happen. Yeah. And then we got the award in late '96, and of course, just hit the ground running. Um, and you know, we're just moving then for three sort of years. And I didn't have time to think that you're just doing, doing, doing. Um, and there's a because <laughs> we opened in the summer of 2000, just so busy doing. And I, there's a there is a video of me at a New Year's party. Counting down, and then so, look, my face goes white because I'm sitting there. Shit, we're in the museum yeah, this year. Within. Oh my god! You know, because <laughs> 1999, 2000 seems yeah. impossibly long away. Yeah. So there's that interesting moment. You sitting, oh, well, what happens next? Yeah. Um, and you know, then there was you know various people encouraged me to go for the job of curator, and I thought, yeah, I've, I've spent, I put too much of my life into this site to just walk away without at least having thrown my hat in the ring. Did you? Take that job thinking, you, you said earlier that you think you could maybe slip back if you didn't like it or if it didn't yeah. work out. Well, I mean, I think there's a thing about being a field archaeologist. I mean, the first seven years at Trump, I was never on more than a three-month contract at any given moment right. or six months or something like that. So that naturally gave so you So I just naturally had that. Well, you know, <laughs> there was always this feeling that 
And again, growing up with an actor father, this job will end. Yeah. Okay. There will be, and then I'll have to do something else. That's so really interesting. Find something else. So I had that <laughs> yeah. right the way through. So, and were you I, comfortable I, with that? Totally comfortable with it then. Because you know, uh, you'd seen your parents survive in that uh, yeah, way. Yeah, I, I grew up knowing that was the deal. Yeah. You know, um, I better pay trip to my wife who had a proper job, you know, so, <laughs> so there was always that, you know. Um, and mum had the proper job, dad was the actor. Um, but no, I think, that, so it wasn't weird to me to think I could be out of a job. Yeah. Now it would be now, you know, yeah. many, many years later. Um, but then it was just, it was just part of me. I'd see friends doing it all the time, changing different contracts, what have you. So it never bothered me. Yeah. I just accepted it. Um, interesting when you get Segadunum and we've moved to a bigger house and all those kind of things, you start to get a bit older and worry a bit more about these things. <laughs> um, but, you know, I remember with Segadunum, I was in a strange position that when we got it, so I had a permanent post, but there's no guarantee of permanent post can do forever. But the HLF had made sure, uh, the rule was, North Science Council had to commit to running the museum for five years. Yep. So it's this bizarre thing, it was the first time I sat going, I've got five straight years. Yeah. That was, that was weird. And of course now I've just, you know, I'm always aware the job could end. Yeah. But it's, it's... And does that change the nature of the projects that you're approaching in that role? You know, so all of a sudden you're starting to think, well, next summer we could be doing this, and the summer after yeah, we could well, be doing I, this. Yeah, we always had a bit of a sense of what digs would come up when I was when I was doing that. But I think, yeah, at Sega Doom, you're thinking, oh, the museum will be open next year, what's the exhibition? So you, yeah. you get into a very different routine. Um, and it's quite interesting. That's probably one of the things I, I wanted to move away from when I was at Sega Doom, that, that the routine gets established very quickly. It's, well, how do we hit the Vista figures next year? And what yeah. exhibition are we doing next year? Yeah. So it was too um, regimented. Yeah. The job I've got now... There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of straight management to it and, and stuff to do. But actually, there's a lot of diving around lots of different things. So in many ways, that feels more like the old freelance archaeology. Yeah. You never know what's happening yeah. next. There's always something new, some element to it. So I quite so, like that. So what does your average day look like now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, hysterical or, laughter. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's no such thing. Um, I mean, there might be an average month, but yeah. an average day is impossible. So, you know, I could be... Sometimes we'd be down London um, for a day of meetings about the Bridge Programme, which is a cultural learning programme. Sometimes I could be, um, you know, talking to sort of a northeast organisation about whatever cultural programme we're doing. Um, sometimes I might be chairing a, a project board here. Yeah. Other days I might be sat in here, poring over spreadsheets, <laughs> you know, doing it, doing one-to-ones with, with staff, making sure they're all right, you know, yeah. um, supporting people. Um, but then in the midst of all this, this project Hadrian's Cavalry, which is right back to doing my Romans. And, and you know, yeah. I wouldn't say I got stuck into the detail, but, but for someone doing the job I do, I got more in than you normally would. Yeah, it allowed you that creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you've, got to have, you've got to have some fun. Yeah. So how do you um, maintain that motivation? Because obviously some of that is going to be quite heavy admin. That's the yeah. nature of a senior management role, isn't it? Where yeah. you're dealing with, as you say, fundraising spreadsheets, writing applications. How do you maintain that creative spark, or how do you fulfil that? Yeah. You know, how do you are you actively seeking out projects, and do you become a little bit too attached to some things along the there's, way? There's or? a bit of that. It's you know, you you feel your way through. There's no game plan. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's so some of it. You know, we we get money from the arts council. The way you work with the arts council is you have a relationship with them, and they'll make suggestions of things, and there sometimes they'll hint to and like you to take something on. Yeah. And you go right, okay, well, that sounds interesting. We'll, we'll take that on. You know. Um, sometimes you'll see a way of joining up several things at once. So 
Hadrian's Cavern is a good example. So it was a project across all the museums of Hadrian's Wall to work together in partnership to deliver a, you know, a British Museum level exhibition yeah. and a big cavalry reenactment event. Um, Arts Council funded it. Um, they funded it because they want to see museums work together in partnership, and partnership working is probably the, my other main passion, how to get people to work in partnership. So I got what I would call a two-for-one deal. Right. I got to do my Romans and do what I do in the day job, which is you know, find yeah, ways for museums but, to work together in partnership. Yeah. So I got to go, go and play Romans and talk at conferences and, and see colleagues and, and you know, interpret you know, the Romans in, in a different way, yeah, yeah. Um, while at the same time doing the thing I, I, I can do well professionally, which is bring people together. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was fun, you know, and I, I, you know, I suppose I probably do try and look for that added value with everything I do because there's so much of it and some of it can be quite disconnected. How do you continually allow each part of your work to add value to another? Yeah. It's a big challenge. But I quite, I, I enjoy intellectually trying to work out what that is. So you said that earlier about job titles here. Mm. So uh, you said that sometimes they don't kind of, they're not quite... Well, it's, it's, it's a funny one. So um, because we're tied into the local authority, or part of local authority, there's, there's different rules about job titles. So it's quite hard to work out who your opposite number is in different types of institutions. <laughs> so we have a director. It's a dangerous game charge. trying to map your job uh, onto yeah. somebody and else. I'm, and I'm head of programmes. <laughs> But in other organisations, you have assistant directors, that director, the other, senior yeah. directors. And so my advice to anyone starting out is don't assume because the words are the same that the jobs are the same. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the one piece of advice I wished I'd had when I was younger. I was trying to work out how does everyone fit together. Yeah. Some sites, a supervisor is more like a site director and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. All of that language, which is very loaded. Yeah. And people will you know, inevitably use you know, the language to describe what they do yeah. that, that best suits them. And why shouldn't you? Yeah. No, there's no, no harm in that. But job titles are, are fraught. You know, what, what is an assistant keeper? You know, what is a curator? Yeah, well, the curator is yeah. kind of interesting as you start yeah. to see or for the last 10 years have been post advertisers curator of learning or which yeah. is kind of very opposite to that kind of traditional view of a curator exactly. and then we start to see the emergence of of chief executive kind of replacing yeah. that director so yeah. director becomes and i think i mean i think that's what's really interesting is in the past because there wasn't all that business stuff to this sector that's not entirely true but there's less of it yeah um you you would it be hard to be the specialist yeah uh, and of course, when I started, I was hired to be a specialist field excavator with the knowledge of the Roman army, yeah. you know, in a way. Um, but now I'm hired as a specialist in developing partnerships and yeah, things like yeah. that. So it moves on. But, uh, so you, I, like most people in the museum's profession, the worry in museums now is, well, why do we lose all the specialist knowledge? Yeah. Oh, I barely use mine, but, you know, for now and again, yeah, we can. Yeah. And at least it's there if we need it. You yeah. Know? Um, and we've got good links to the university where, you know, and, and that's the other way of getting specialist knowledge. Yeah. But I think it's, it's a worry for the sector. Um, if everyone is a generalist manager, where are the specialists? Yeah. But I think you can't, you can't get away with purely being a specialist. You kind of need several strings to your bow, really. So developing mm. lots of different skills as mm. you kind of move through. You seem to have been pretty good at that, though, even if you've not necessarily consciously yeah. thought about it at the time. I mean, looking back at it, I so say, what happens I get excited by the challenge, and I get interested. Right, and that's enough and that's, to get that's you over enough. The, yeah, yeah, that gets me through that bit. And, and you know, one of the great advantages of a large organisation at the time is there are specialists and also sort of fundraising front of house, things like that. Um, and the trick is to learn from them. Yeah. You know, um, and, and have a sense of it. So I, I probably have a sense of a lot of areas, um, but I know who to talk to. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to try not to go on your own. 
which can be quite compelling. Just I'll just do it, and actually try and try and make sure you've listened to your colleagues and understood their expertise. So, so how important is networking? I think it's in, actually in our DNA. I mean, one of the, the, the things to remember at times is it itself is a partnership. Yeah. Every day here is a partnership. We're negotiating with different organisations. We are different mm. museums. So we have a focus, which is our mission, which is very people-focused. Um, and we all sign up to that. And we, we, and we, so it's in our DNA to be a partner. Yeah. Um, and then, interesting, I think a lot of the funders um, and government want to see more partnership work because actually, if it's done right, it can be more cost-effective yeah. in terms of not cheaper, just more cost-effective yeah. in terms yeah. of impacts. Um, so, and, and I've always been kind of, I guess, I've taken point on that a lot in different uh, areas of the program. So, museums hub, the bridge program, creative partnerships, um, museum development, all those things. There's elements of, of partnership working, working across a number of institutions. Yeah. Leading outside your authority would be the classic phrase for it. Yeah. Um, but I just enjoy that motivating people and getting getting people to, to focus on, you know, improving things. So do you play a mentoring role at all, either in a formal or informal way? Yeah, I've done both. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe some of my colleagues will say I mentor informally entirely too much. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I like, you know, I like, it's like a problem-solving thing, I guess. I like helping other people solve their problems themselves. Yeah. So, because there's mentoring, you don't do it for them. Yeah. You just expose them to some ideas and thoughts and let them find their own way. And I, I, I kind of, I really enjoy that. Um, I, you know, it doesn't always work because there's personalities and things like that as well. But but when it works well, um, and you're just sharing your experience, really. Yeah. Um, and just being very open. I really enjoy that. Because, again, it, it just, I guess it goes back to being true to myself. That's how I operate. Yeah, because you said right at the very start that your gateway to all of this was, yeah. you know, that your exposure to those archaeologists on mm. site who all of a sudden shared some pointers yeah. with you and the, yeah. the door opened and you felt that you'd found a family there, which yeah. that's tremendously important, isn't it? Yeah. That, that, you, that somebody is sharing a like-minded yeah. approach to the world or seeing things in a similar way to you. Yeah, it's that classic thing when you're at school, who else is interested in history, really, of the yeah. boys, you know? Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's these, these blokes who don't look that geeky, they're all wearing torn jeans and steel-toe cap boots and, yeah. you know covered in mud yeah you know so you find your tribe you know that's that's really you find your tribe you find your family and, I, and i've been very lucky in that i found a second family in the museum world and you see yeah. it's again it's like-minded people who are, you know want want to use museums to improve people's lives yeah. you know and i'm excited by that uh, you know by using my specialist knowledge my, you know, my, my gain knowledge of, of past and present to do that yeah and does that, I mean, that, that obviously extends out to volunteering and those mm. kind of things as well. Mm. So what, what role is that playing, in your view, in, in the museum sector at the moment or in the culture, the wider cultural sector, I guess, because that includes things like, I'm mean, including things like archaeology within yeah. there. I mean, I think I would hate archaeology to lose contact with volunteering. I think, you know, it's, it's very much a, a people-centred thing. Uh, and, you know, it, it has to be a profession. There's I've no doubt about that. But it's a profession that... that that needs to leave room for people to volunteer and become excited, you know, because it's part of that continuum of lifelong learning. So volunteering yeah. on a dig, volunteering in a museum. Um, I'm interested in it as much as anything with people who are, you know, people get something from it for themselves. So it might be because they've retired, they want to give something back or yeah. fill their days. It might be they're desperate to build some skills for employability. They might just have a passion that they can't, like an itch you can't stop scratching, yeah, you know, yeah. all those things. But the trick to remember with volunteers is that it's got to be about what the volunteer gets out of it. Yeah. 
and the byproduct is the work the organisation gets. Okay, it's an interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's got to be a challenge but, in a. But the yeah. truth is, you will get better work. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a cynical manager thing here, but you'll get better work. You know, if you're if you're so flexibility, um, them, understanding what the volunteers are trying to get from it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and supporting that. Other specific people throughout your journey, throughout your career journey, that you can pinpoint, say they made a really significant difference to, cool. to what I was doing, whether it be. Teacher yeah, or yeah, yeah. No, there, there, there are. I mean, there are. I mean, I, I, I would consider myself very lucky. I had, um, you know, exceptional tutors at university, who were not um, great. I am's. They were just. They were passionate about the subject. They recognised. I guess who had the passion, and they just opened the door. What's that? And said, yeah. "You're having the passion to thing." Yeah. So that was that was great. And then working. Now then, I have to be very careful about this. One of my first bosses before I worked at Twam wasn't very good. I learned more from that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I didn't realise he wasn't very good, but I was just watching his style and going, I don't know about this. Yeah. You know, um, and since I've been at PA, I mean, I've, I've mentioned Paul Bidwell, who's, you know, um, you know, absolutely exceptional. But I mean, I've, I've been very lucky. I mean, I, I would say um, I've always had excellent bosses while working here. Yeah. If you're listening, Ian, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I have, and I think you know that that comes from the organisation. Is now I'm not stupid. Not everyone has a, a happy time in an organisation. Some people don't like big organisations. Yeah. What have you? You know. Um, but no, I've I've uh, you know always always been very comfortable with with, with people. So I, I mean, and I I find I find people inspiring. Full stop. And you've been here for twenty eight and a half years. It's mm, a so, long time. So yeah, a long time. Are you a home bird? Are you been tempted to go further afield or? Not really, no. Um, you know, I mean, occasionally jobs come up and you have a look at them, but I don't, I've never seriously considered a job outside of region. And I've not really, I'd kind of, I guess I'm probably about as detached from archaeology and things like Hadrian's Walls I want to get. I mean, I sit on various committees for Hadrian's Walls. So I've yeah. got a grand old man state, so I can do all that, which is great. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, if I lost my job, you, you've got to be sensible. I mean, I've been very lucky <coughs> that I've, I've worked most of a period where I've been able to have, have you know, great jobs. Um, and so if, you know, there was no work in the sector, I've got skills I could use somewhere else. And I'm aware yeah. of that and I'm not stupid and I would, I would go and do that. But, yeah. um, you know, I have a way of judging how you really feel about things. And it's the, what would you do if you're on the lottery question? <laughs> to which me, if I want enough, buy a Roman fort and dig it for the rest of my life. <laughs> so that tells me and everybody yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that will be, you know, that, that's the closest thing you've got to an ambition. It's completely unrealisable. Well, you know, almost. Might hit if I win that lottery. If I win that lottery, it'd be yeah. fine. But um, that's the what would you do with your life if you didn't have to earn money? Yeah. And I'd basically, I'd largely do what I do now, wouldn't I? Yeah. That's the, yeah, the yeah. fascinating thing. Um, so, and not everyone is in that lucky position. I, that's a very, very lucky position to be in, you know. Um, uh, but it, it also shows that, you know, all these years later, that's still how I feel. Yeah. That would be the thing I'd want to do. The North East seems to have quite a, a, a low turnover of, of people that are leaving the region mm. to go elsewhere. Do, yeah. Why do you think that is? Where, Which, where I sarcastic, I say, it's because the house prices are so low here, you couldn't move and have the bigger <laughs> house in the rest of the country. Um, I was thinking that you were yeah. going to say something, the diversity no, of... No, it is, um, it is, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's the joke reason. Yeah. I mean, you know, but, but uh, you know, and, well, I think there's some economic truth in it for some people. Yeah. Um, but I think the reality is it's, um, 
actually, I'd say it's more, from my perspective, what I like about the Northeast, and it won't appeal to everyone, is it's two degrees of separation. So you ever heard the game six degrees of separation? Yeah. You can always connect one person to another through yeah, six yeah. steps. In the Northeast, you can do it two steps. Yeah. So I'm always excited by meeting someone in the Northeast who's been around in my area who I've never met. And it does happen from time to time. It's yeah. like amazing. You know? And then you find you've got 10 or 20 overlaps with other yeah, people. Yeah. Um, it's like a LinkedIn, but real. Yeah. Um, and I, re- I really like that. I like the fact that it's small enough for people to know each other, to not be able to hide from each other, to meet each other, and make things happen very quickly. And when I talk to colleagues down south, they don't have that same opportunity. And of course, I really like that. Yeah, I really like that. So it gives you a big head start with the kind of work that you're doing, where you're talking about partnership working. That mm. must give you a kind of tremendous. There's, 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 there's usually an in somewhere. Yeah. If you don't know someone, you know someone else who can. Yeah. And and it's not an old boys network. No. It's, it's actually it's... just plain know who you know how to talk to people in the posts yeah. or who, you know who's in the posts who've got that responsibility and you can join up quickly. Yeah. So you know, I, I, and it's still a challenge, but it's it feels almost achievable. Yeah. Whereas you just can't do it in bigger parts of the country. So within this bigger framework, what, what are the biggest challenges you think are facing the sector now as we, as we move forward? Well, I think um, inevitably we're still in this period of austerity. Yep. So the cuts continue. Yep. Um, so you've got to be aware of that. But one day that will stop. The, the question is when. And you know other things happen as well. So in archaeology, the boom and bust comes with whether there's development happening or not. Yeah. The more buildings are going up, the more archaeology. In museums, it's still much more about the public purse. Not for all museums, um, but in the cultural sector, there's, there's still... And we talk about cutting off the reliance on the public purse, which I, I, you know, I agree with. We do a lot of work to try and do that. But that's the issue. And if the public purse starts to grow again, the sector will grow again. Yeah. Um, you know, it needs to do a lot more to help itself, and it is doing. I mean, I think the sector's come on a lot in the last 15 years, in particular around that. Um, you know, and I started at this level when there was tons of government money coming in. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, it's not gone. I mean, the, the other thing we should remember um, is when I, the Renaissance money started in 2003, I remember people saying, enjoy your two or three years and it's gone. Well, even now, even still in the teeth of austerity, central government is still via Arts Council and other sources putting money into the museum sector. That yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. There's less of it than we'd like, but at least it's there. Yeah. yeah. Of course, on the other hand, the, you know, doing over the local authority budgets. So, yeah, you know, yeah. um, so it's always going to be a struggle. But I'd say so. the money's the big challenge. I am worried about the lack of specialists, but I think that might be partly an age thing because you know, there will be people coming up now who will be the next great yeah. expert on this, that or the other. You can't see them yet, that's do you, all. Do you think that the partnership element might be the future of that? I personally believe so. I think, I think the more the sector works together, and you know, the line I'll use is we can stand together or we can fall apart. Yeah. Um, so it's how the sector supports each other, how it shares skills. While understanding, there's an element of, of um, commercial in all this um, and a worry that, you know, you're taking my visitors or what have you. But actually, and we do this across TWAM, it's about how you collectively grow the market. Yeah. So um, if someone visits a museum, they're more likely to visit another museum. Yeah. Um, so the trick is how do we collectively get people into museums? I mean, a line I used to use years ago is it's all about getting more people into more museums more often. Yeah. So they can spend less time doing other things that aren't so good for them, <laughs> like shopping <laughs> or DIY. Well, your biggest competitor you know. is, you know, realistically the metro centre, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. That's the... yeah, that's sad to say. Um, I mean, my, my line would be, you know, I, I want people to, to visit our museum instead of go to B&Q so that I don't have to queue for so long when I want to. <laughs> um, but 
And it's understandable. And of course, we're not in competition. People have to live lives. People live rich lives. But we, we can get blinkered into, oh, God, they're going to visit that museum instead of my museum. Yeah. And that's a zero-sum game. We'll just gradually reduce down and reduce down. We've got to say, well, if they're visiting your museum, how can I work with you to get them to visit my museum as well? What can we do together to grow our numbers? Yeah. And, and, and you know, as budget cuts come, can we share posts? Can we share expertise? You know, where can we double up? And a lot of the funders will support more and more partnership working. Yeah. And it's about sharing the load as well, because there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. So get it right, you can, you can spread the load across a number of people. Yeah. And if you were, you know, if you were starting out again now, mm. what, what words of wisdom would you share with your 18 <laughs> or 20, 20, 21, straight out of university, with your, your, your graduating I, I, self? I find this a hard one give generic advice to because it depends on the individual yeah um but from my experience it would be if you've got a passion follow it don't be shy don't be don't be arrogant and pushy yeah but get stuck in there so i i can remember just because it didn't occur to me not to i was going to various conferences you know so i'm straight out of university just graduated i'm not doing postgraduate or anything like that yeah um because i got a job um and in that first year in particular i started late enough to not have to pay tax so that sounds a silly thing, this, but it's right. I had a bit more cash than you'd expect. Um, so I spent it going to conferences just because I was absorbed. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't about being pushy. It wasn't about getting my name out. I wasn't offering papers or anything. Um, I just rocked up to conferences and, and talked about what I was interested in. Now, that paid off for me um, in that I was on a dig. I knew a supervisor on it from a, a previous dig. He said, what do you do at university? Oh, I've done did this dissertation on the use of the scene of the Roman army. Oh, there's this guy called Mike Bishop I know who'll be interested in this. He calls Mike Bishop, tells him about me. Um, next thing, Mike, who's one of the great guys, just reads and says, there's this um, Roman military equipment conference in Holland um, next year. We can take you over in a minibus um, if you just want to give a 20-minute presentation on your work. And of course, you're, you're it didn't in. occur to me not to. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. said, oh, all right then. Um, and it was, it was kind of a naive innocence. It wasn't arrogance. I, you know, I really wasn't arrogant. It was just like... Oh, cool! Can you do that? Um, yeah. So there was naivety about it. Whereas, you know, and I'm glad I had that. I think you know, it, it, if you pursued that with an arrogant bent, yeah, it'd be different. Maybe I have a PhD now. I don't know, um, but it worked for me. That's yeah. my last question. Oh, okay, that's, that's good. Yeah, yeah. But thank you very much for nice. your time. It was really good. Really interesting. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 